Welcome everybody to Half Past Dead Paranormal Radio, the Paranormal and Strange. I'm your host, Roger Belt, along with co-host Hank Stratton. Hey, everybody. We're coming to you live on WCJV Digital Broadcasting out of Youngstown, New York. And we have a terrific guest tonight, uh, Miss Karen Vance Hammond, who is the author of Shoe Marks. And... Uh, this book, by the way, is, is, is very, very gripping. Uh, I couldn't stop reading it, so it, it's going to be a great show, everybody. Uh, welcome, Karen. Thank you very much for having me. You know, when I heard that I was going to be coming on the show, when you invited me on, I was absolutely elated. I mean, I believe tonight, if I understand it correctly, this radio show is worldwide, is it not? That's what I, I think you would understand. But uh, I know East Coast wide anyway. Yes, that's what I understand. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. It's really an honor. No, uh, it's our honor. Um, Karen is, uh, she will go into later on here about the problems she's had to deal with to get where she is, but she's an outstanding author. And. I would like to ask you, because uh, I was wondering about this, you know, if somebody writes a book as good as that one is, how did you come across the idea? What what uh, got you into doing this novel? You know, a lot of people ask me that. I had never even contemplated writing a novel. I mean, <laughs> me with a learning disability, dyslexia, having a reading disability, never being able to be in the regular classroom, having to go to a, a college that had a special program that was geared toward people who had various learning disabilities, I never even contemplated writing. <laughs> i tell you what, Roger, that was never in the cards for me until I met Jennifer Stone. Jennifer Stone, I actually met her in a restaurant, believe it or not. My little girl was in a um, um, she was in a small chair and she was young, and so we started talking. You know, we started to get to know each other, and I had already experienced some paranormal activity myself, along with my family. And she said, "If I tell you something, do you promise not to laugh?" And I said, "I'll." I promise I will not laugh. She said, I've lived in a home that has had paranormal activity for over 25 years. And I dropped, my mouth dropped, and I said, tell me more. 
We spent hours talking to each other about the experiences that I've had, the experiences that she has had, the experience that her family has had to endure, the hell that they had to go through inside of the Horton home. After I heard her story, I went home. And I told my husband, I said, I met the most intriguing woman today. Roger and Hank, I could not get her story out of my mind, what this family had to go through. So I had never even thought about writing a novel. And I went to her and I said, Jen, you need to share your story. You need to tell the world what has happened. And I said, I've never even thought about it, but I would at least like to attempt to write a novel about it, and I did. The novel is called Shoe Marks. It's a <coughs> para paranormal inspired by true events that took place in Texas. How long did it take you to write it? First draft, it took me six weeks. I mean, I was smoking on that computer. The second draft took me around... I want to say approximately seven months because you had to understand that I had a toddler with me. And then the last draft, which was the third and final draft, took me about 11 to 12 months, probably a year. I took the manuscript to Jennifer because I told her, I said, look, I'm not even going to even attempt to even publish this. I'm not even going to attempt to even find an agent or find a publisher until you approve this. And it took her three days to read it. Tears were rolling down her face. And she said, honey, you got it right. You have it right. And that's when I started looking for a uh, publisher. Now, I've noticed online that I'm finding... Um it's offered in uh, Smashwords.com and Overdrive.com. It is offered at Smashwords. It's also offered on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. It's also at my publisher's website, which is SynergyBooks.com. Even in a Kindle edition. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Kindle and paperback. You uh, researched this for like two years, didn't you? Yes, I did. Um, after I got permission to write the novel, it took me two years of investigations, two years of going inside of the Horton home, two years of talking to people who lived in the town, who knew this family, who knew of the Horton home. I was even able... And I think I told you this before, I was even able to track down a former woman who lived inside of the Horton home. You have to remember, this house has paranormal activity in it. And when I talked to her, I said, would you be willing to tell me your story, to go back inside of the home? Her name, she, um, her, <clears throat> excuse me, she said, I will never ever go back inside of that house again. Her name was Jan Oliver, and I was able to track her down. You have to understand that when Jennifer Stone was only 10 years old, when her family bought the Horton home, 
Jeremy Stone was wounded in Market Beach and, excuse me, Utah Beach and Market Garden. So he had two Purple Hearts, and he was sick of war. He was tired of he was tired of World War II. So what he wanted to do was find a home, settle down. They were sick and tired of living on military bases, and. This family sunk every dime they had in this house. You have to remember, the Depression was still going on, and there were a lot of people that were losing their homes, a lot of people that couldn't even buy food, a lot of people that were still living in their cars, and so they did not want to lose it. But the realtor, the realtor, and I know you read it, Roger, the realtor knew this house had paranormal activity all the way back, dating back to 1899. Right. And she knew it, and she let this family buy this home, this sweet, innocent, God-fearing Christian family. She allowed them to buy this house. But Jeremy Stone thought that he was buying the dream home for his growing family, but what he didn't know was that he was buying hell. And that's exactly what they walked into. Yeah, I read that where um, he sunk everything that he had into it because it, he explained to his wife that if they didn't pay cash for it, they could wind up losing their house like everybody else was. Absolutely. Also, at the time, they were uh, they were having to buy food with the, the little stamps that you had, you know, during the Depression. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A lot of people at that time were losing their homes because of the economy was so bad with the Great Depression. Now, in World War II, during this time that this book is de depicted, World War II was getting the United States rolling again. So, no, they did not want a house note. They sunk every stinking dime they had into this house. Now, back then, they didn't have to let that information out. Nowadays, when you talk to a realtor, and you can ask them, and they, if they have any ethics, they will answer whether or not the house has got any problems, quote, end quote, you are absolutely right because I did research on that and I, and I looked up house disclosures back in the 1940. Basically, you just checked off a few things, you signed on the dotted line, you got the keys to the house. Nowadays, it is pages upon pages of stuff. And now if you look at a house disclosure, you even have to answer if somebody has died in the home. And I think that that's one of the reasons why. Um, when I bought my home in Northeast Texas, we had paranormal activity in it, but so did my realtor. And so she explained to me that is one of the reasons why. Another reason why they have that on the disclosure is in case that there was a murder case or an accident. And so, yes, it is very, very involved now. But back then, 1944, they really didn't have that much information. They, you know, 
they really didn't know to ask. But Eleanor King, who sold the home to the Hortons, who knew that this house was haunted, who knew it, who knew that Maggie Horton had died inside of that home because she was murdered, she knew it and never disclosed it. Never disclosed it. You were lucky if you could even buy a home back then. You were lucky even to have nylon stockings back then. And to have that commission, that was like, the, you know, that was like the golden egg for her. Right. You know, she was all she was worried about was selling the house. She didn't really care, you know, if the family was going to be in harm or not. Absolutely. Even the movers, you are so right, Roger, even the movers who moved, um, who moved the Stone family inside of that home, he knew about that house. And if you read it, he says, ooh, I know about this house. You'll be calling me to move you right back out just like the last family. There were families, Roger. There were families, Roger and Hank, that had moved inside of that home and moved right back out. And some of the families even left their furniture. They wanted to get out. They wanted to get out quick because the paranormal activity was absolutely overwhelming. They could not handle it. Now, if I read right. correctly, you had yeah, like three. I'm sorry. If I read correctly. I'm sorry. I'm, if I read correctly, there were uh, a, there was an account of three or four families during yes, this period sir, of time. Yes, sir. There certainly was. Um, one of the things is that the house had sat vacant after Maggie Horton died inside of the home after she was murdered. The house sat vacant for a while, and at one time they wanted to make it into um, the town wanted to make it into a bed and breakfast. Of course, you know, that didn't materialize. Another time, the city wanted to make it into a museum. And of course, that didn't materialize either. So the house sat vacant for a while. It started to sell a little bit at the time, but there was not a permanent resident that would stay in that home. The paranormal activity was too much, and people left. The mover uh, guy had told, told them basically that he moved the last people in and out. That's right. He did move them in and out. So this has been quite a quite quite a uh, how shall I put this? Uh, a selling point for the movers because uh, you're going to call us to move you anyway. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, they were expecting, oh, you know, you know, we have to move this stuff in and you're going to call me to move you right back out. That didn't happen. That did not happen. So, you know, this house with the paranormal activity that was inside of the home the Stone family absolutely had no idea, absolutely no idea what they were getting themselves into. Now, now who would... Her husband be hurt to death right there in the, in the hallway, did you not? Or? I'm sorry, say that again one more time. You were breaking up on me. 
didn't her husband beat her to death in the hallway or something, or by the stairway? Yes. 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 Stairs. Yes. By the banister downstairs, uh, when she was beaten by her jealous husband, and how I found this out, and this is really interesting, is that when I was doing my investigations, I spoke with residents of this small town. This is the type of town where everybody knows your name, everybody knows your business. And so they knew of Maggie and James Wharton. A lot of people have grandparents, great-grandparents, that knew of Maggie and James Wharton. And so the story went is he was a very, very mean man, and he got what he wanted, and he had an iron fist, and he was known for starting fights. Now... One of the things is that after Maggie Horton gave birth to her firstborn son, three days later, she was dead. And the people in attendance at the memorial service, James Horton told the people that she had died from dehydration and exhaustion. She didn't die from dehydration and exhaustion. She was murdered and she was beaten. And that is in the book. Of course, Roger, you read it. But one of the things, too, is that the paranormal activity, one of the things that the Stone family noticed right after they moved in is the clocks were always set at 9 o'clock. Now, in the very first part of the book, I have Laura unpacking her things. Jennifer remembers this vividly, putting a clock up on the wall, looking back, and she could see the hand spin, and it stopped at 9 o'clock. It did not matter if it was a, a digital clock. It did not matter if it was a wind-up clock. It stopped at 9 o'clock. And to this day, these clocks are set at 9 o'clock. When I went inside of the Horton home to do my own investigation, I took a wind-up clock, and I set it on the fireplace mantle. A couple of hours later, I went back downstairs. Guess what? That clock was set at 9 o'clock. It is strange. They cannot keep those clocks set. Now, what? people believe, what the paranormal investigators believe, and yes, there were paranormal investigators back in the day, but they weren't as prevalent as it is today. Because you have to understand, if you said something back in the 1940s, World War II time, oh, I have a ghost in my house. I have paranormal activity in my house. There's things moving in my house. People would laugh you and call the people in the white coats too to come and get you and put you away forever. Nowadays, it is more accepted. So the paranormal investigators that did come inside of the home, and I have it all written out there, of course, Roger, you read it, they believe that that is where Maggie Wharton died, was by the banister, leaving her shoe marks behind. And that is why the name of the novel is called Shoe Marks. Shoe Marks. Right, exactly. And uh, one of the, uh, I won't say he was a parapsychologist, I think he was at a university or something, uh, told them to get a Ouija board and contact her. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was one of the worst things that uh, <laughs> that the doctor could have ever told them to do. Exactly. You know, that's a child's game back then. That is a child's game back then. Now, there were things that were used, of course, dowsing rods, and, you know, there were other things that were used. But for the most part, and I researched this, the Ouija board was created and made way before 1944. I did a lot of research on it. And so it was a child's game. You know, you ask the questions, am I going to fall in love? Who's my next boyfriend going to be? You know, and so there wasn't really that much of a prevalent attachment, if you will, or a portal to paranormal activity back then. But boy, there is now. And when so the doctor, the parapsychologist, let me explain to you why they went to a parapsychologist. One of the reasons why is because they did not know what to do. This family needed help. They were they were embarrassed even to even tell anybody. And so the doctor said, you need to make some kind of contact. And boy, when they got that Ouija board, believe me, they did. Okay, they had folks, no idea. Uh, we're live on WCJV Digital Broadcasting out of Youngstown, New York. We're going to take a short little pause, and we'll be right back. Don't anybody go away, because this is very interesting. <laughs> WCJV Digital Radio in Youngstown, New York. Okay, we're back, everybody. Uh, this is really interesting, and uh, I wanted to ask a question about John. Okay. What I read in, in the book, he was like the ex-lover that she ditched to marry James, right? 
That is correct. That is what I found out through the townspeople, is that she did have a former lover by the name of John Smith. Now, John was a laborer who rode around on horseback looking for work. That is how they found their work back then. A lot of that was through word of mouth. And so John and James Horton, they were friends. They weren't too friendly. But James Horton did know that they had dated at one time. Now, um, John Smith, from what we understand from, from talking to people at the town, that he was found dead days later by the pond on the Horton property. Now, from what I know, from talking to Jennifer, from talking to Robert, to talking to other family members, is that Robert would go down to the pond. He loved to be down there, and he spent hours down there, and he looked in the water, and for the first time, and this is right when they were looking at the house with Miss King. He sees someone standing behind him, and he saw John Smith's reflection. He was dressed as a cowboy. He had on a black shirt. He had on blue jeans. He had on a cowboy hat. He had on chaffs. And so he was there. Now, did the family members see him later? Yes, they did. Jeremy Stone even saw him, and he was looking for the fence. I'm looking for the fence to mend. And Jeremy Stone said, sir, who are you? There is no fence. This is 1944. You look like you're ready to go to a Halloween, you know, party. And, of course, John Smith, he is known to still haunt the property today looking for the fence. And also the uh, the young son had seen him standing behind him at the pond. That's right. When that he looked around, there was nobody there. Yes, yes, yes. So there was more than one um, spirit, if you will. There's Maggie Hortons, and of course there's John Smith. But I chose not to focus on John Smith too much. I felt like that he was a pivotal point, but not so much. You know, Maggie Horton really needed to shine in this book. And so I focused on her. I focused on the horrible paranormal activity that this family had to endure and what happened to this family and what happened to Maggie Horton. This woman was mad. I want to tell you, and you and I had talked about it, if you had just given birth to your son and you were murdered, but yet your spirit was still around, consciously still around, I would be mad, mad, mad. And so there was a lot of paranormal activity that was geared toward the women in the house, but not so much as the men. And you will figure that out later when you read shoe marks. Some of the paranormal activity, and I know that you asked me about this, what was some of the paranormal activity in that home? When Jennifer and her family bought the house, they were absolutely elated to get off of military property. They had lived on military bases for a good portion um, of 
their lives. And so Jennifer, she remembers vividly. She said, I stood on the stoop with my dad, and we were so excited to have our first home. When my daddy put that key in the keyhole, the door opened on its own, and that's when the paranormal activity started with his family. Now, there were things, of course, Jeremy Stone was away at work every day, but there were things that Laura, she was pregnant at the time, Laura had suspicion that there was something going on in that home. Their toy box and honey would bark profusely, looking at nothing, nothing. They would walk through cold spots, hot spots. Laura... Of course, like I said, she was pregnant, and she could walk through a cold spot, and she would say, I am chilled to the bone. What is going on? Doors would start shutting on their own. Lights would start turning on and off. Jennifer could go into her, her own bedroom, turn on the light switch, and it would immediately turn off. She would turn it on again, and it would turn off. Turn it on again, and it would turn off. So even the kids, they started, you know, maybe something is going on. You know, some, somebody's playing a trick on us. When Laura Stone, she was about to give birth, and I have this, and Roger, you read it. She walked down the stairs. She was big. She was uncomfortable. She was in her ninth month. She walked down the stairs. She flicked on the light switch, and she let out the most horrific scream knowing, feeling that there was paranormal activity in the home. All the kitchen cupboard doors were open. Pots and pans were scattered in every direction. There were towels everywhere. There was broken glass. And there were dishes that were stacked. And she let out a scream. And Jennifer and Robert, those were her only two children at the time, they ran down and they said, Mommy, Mommy, are you having a baby? And, of course, Laura thinks that her kids are playing a trick on her, but they weren't. And that is when the hellacious paranormal activity started, and it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse every single day. Every day, Roger and Hank, they had to deal with this paranormal activity. Not only did they see things move, of, of course, but they also heard voices. After James Collins Stone, I need to back up a little bit. When the kids were playing in the barn, and you asked me about this earlier, when the children were playing in the barn, they found some furniture. Now, you have to understand, there was a bunch of stuff that was left behind from the previous owner. But up in the loft, and I saw the loft, I went to the home. I knew how to describe it to a T. There was some furniture. There was a old wooden baby bassinet. You know, the kind that had the rocker and it rocked back and forth. And then there was a very old, covered with cobwebs, rocking chair. The kids were interested in it. You know, Jennifer said, oh, I've gotten that thing that I rocked. And we started hearing crying. <laughs> they didn't know where it was coming from. They oh, thought that, that kind was, of crying. Okay. Yes, they thought yeah. that it was their. They thought that it was their mother, but it wasn't. Now, 
they didn't have any baby furniture for the new baby. So the kids asked the father, can we paint this? Of course you can. The baby's coming soon. I'm going to take your mom to the hospital now. So they painted it. But what they didn't know, what they did not realize, was that these children were painting and bringing in the Horton home, Maggie Horton's furniture. And that is what the paranormal investigator believes, that it was her furniture. And that is why there is such a tie to that room. Now, some of the voices that they heard was, Mama, Mama, Mama. After James Colin Storm, after James Colin Stone was born, Laura hears, Mama, Mama, Mama. She gets up thinking that it's Robert or Jennifer, and she didn't recognize the voice. She goes into her baby's room, and she sees her brand-new baby boy suspended in thin air in front of a moving rocking chair. Now, you've heard of people elevating. You've read of people elevating. Levitating, yeah. Yes. Absolutely horrific. After that happened, Laura Stone and Jennifer and Robert and Jeremy would not let that baby alone for one minute. Jennifer told me that her mother would drag the playpen from one room to the other. There was no way that she was going to leave that baby alone. Now, another thing that was found in the barn was an old, old doll. It was dirty from what I understand. It had a lot of its hair pulled out. And That's Jennifer... About. I'm sorry, say it again. I didn't understand That's you. What I was going to ask you about was the doll because uh, it yeah, played a big part in everything. Oh, yes, it did. Oh, yes, it did. Uh, now, one of the things is that when they brought that doll inside of that home, they put it in James Colin Stone's room, which was the wrong thing to do. Now, like I said, they would not leave that baby alone. Laura, she was in the kitchen. I have it in the book. Jennifer was there as well. They hear, Mama, Mama, you want to play, Mama? Peekaboo, Mama. Let's play. And, of course, her baby boy couldn't talk, and she hears it. She goes upstairs, scared to death, scared of what she's going to find. She goes into the kids' room, of course, nothing. And then she hears, Mama, let's play. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me, which was a World War II song back then. She goes yeah. into the master bedroom, and she sees that doll sitting on the master bedroom bed, bleeding and talking. And that's when she loses her mind. Absolutely. Getting that. that that was the part cause I knew the doll was on the bed bleeding and it was moving and everything and she was freaking out about it oh absolutely and you know the thing is and I think that people who have paranormal activity in their home and I know that you will agree with me when I say this until you experience the supernatural or the paranormal activity people have no idea what I'm talking about so, a spirit can manifest itself through things. 
um, if you read books, if you do research, if you're a paranormal investigator, a ghost box is a great example on how spirits can manifest themselves in shoe marks in this novel on what happened to this family. Maggie Horton manifested herself through that doll. And she said, this baby is yours. That one is mine. Talking about James Collins Stone. There was that very, very loving connection to that little boy, James Collins Stone. Now, have you been having any problems with your mic from any spirits or anything like that? My mic? Or mics? You mean uh, like talk? You so mean like radio mics? Yeah, a friend of yours, R.L. Uh, Demir, Demiri, had asked that question. Asked, asked Karen about the spirits messing with her mic. Hmm. And past you know, shows she did. Yeah, okay. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I know exactly what you're talking about. When I do, and I've done 102 radio shows, it is very common. When I start talking about Maggie Horton and what she went through and how her life was taken away from her, I have had radio shows totally cut off. I've had my mic go out. Some people on other shows have heard voices. Um, so it's, it's not, it's, it hasn't happened on every show, but it has happened on a lot of shows that there will be paranormal activity. And people, one time in a chat room, people said, I'm hearing somebody say Maggie, Maggie, Maggie over and over and over again. And here I was talking and I wasn't even aware of it. Now the baby crib, they they took the the rocking chair and the baby crib out of the barn and they painted it as a gift for their mama when she come home with the new baby. That's right. And uh, now, at what point did Maggie start claiming James Collins? Very soon after he was born, there was that connection. Very soon after he was born. Um, they would okay. hear voices coming within her room, and it sounded like singing, almost like a lullaby. Right, right. Um, that they would hear uh, voices that sometimes they could understand and sometimes they couldn't. Um, so there was that connection with Maggie Horton and that little baby, but there was also a very big connection with Jeremy Stone and Maggie Horton. She liked the men in the family, and if you read Schumacher's, which, Roger, I know that you have, you will see that she is more loving toward the men in the family than Laura and Jennifer. Now, really, that seems kind of odd because... It was a man that hurt her. Uh, some of our investigations, we find uh, more reactions, depending on what's happened, more reactions to men or to women, depending on who offended the other. You know, that is so right. But also, too, you have to understand that Maggie Horton had just given birth to a baby boy, and three days later, she was dead. 
So what we believe, what the Stone family believes, is that she had a connection with that little baby. Did she think that James Cullen Stone was hers? We don't know. There could have... She may have believed that that baby was hers. So even though she was dead, she may not have known that she was really gone. So, yes, there was that very, very heavy, heavy connection. Uh, yeah, the floorboard. I was going to get to that, uh, where they had hid their, I guess, life's treasures or whatever. She kept trying to get them to notice the floor. Okay, yes, yes. Okay, back then, and and I'm going to teach you a little history lesson. Back then, they had what was called safe boxes. Some of the safe boxes were metal. They had a key to them. There's a lot of safe boxes now. But so people wouldn't find your money back then. They hid the safe box under the floor. This was common. And so you never really knew where to look for the money, but more often than not, it was hidden under the floor, and it's called a safe box. After Maggie Horton had written a letter to her son, she put it in the Bible and put it in the safe box, lifted the wood plank floor placed it in the safe box, and hammered it back. Now, throughout the book, Maggie is trying to send a message, and this happened several times, and they didn't understand. They went through the Ouija board. What does sun floor mean? Sun floor, sun floor, sun floor, sun floor. They didn't know what it meant. And so when the imperial when the paranormal investigators were there, they said something is in the floor. You need to look in the floor. And she was saying, no, my son, and pointing at the floor. She was playing, yes, my son, floor, son, floor, son, floor. There was one time that Jeremy Stone was in the bathroom, and he was taking a bath. And it was written in the mirror, sun floor. Now, another thing, too, and this is really important because I feel like that I, you know, in in writing shoe marks, I felt like that I also needed to bring out the World War II, the horrible, horrible post-traumatic stress disorder that James Horton had to, excuse me, that Jeremy Stone had to endure. Back then... And I know that you read it. This really intrigues a lot of people, and a lot of people ask me about this. This goes back to the murder of Maggie Horton. Back then, in 19 World War II time, they had what was called Victory Gardens. Not only did they have Victory Gardens in England, but they also had them in the United States. And the reason why they had them was because a lot of your food was rationed. And so that's why they called them victory gardens. Dig for victory. A victory garden. When Jeremy Stone went out with Jennifer and Robert to dig the victory garden, he loses himself, not knowing where he is, and 
before he is finished, he has dug six feet. Now, he loses himself back wow. in the war. The post-traumatic stress disorder was horrible. But as soon as he put his hand on that spade, that's when he lost himself. And I felt like that it was really important to bring out some pivotal war points that Jeremy Stone had to go through. That's why I wrote it in there. I wanted everything to come full circle. The next time that Jeremy Stone put that spade in the ground, he felt something hard. And he pulls up an arm bone and a leg bone and a, and a rib cage and a skull and a wedding ring that had M-H to J-H written on the inside. And also Maggie Horton's shoes with half the heels missing. The coroner, the sheriff, you have to understand this was a very, very small town. The sheriff was called out. But not only was the sheriff called out, but also newspaper reporters were also contacted. And this is where a lot of people started coming by the house. They started taking pictures. They knew that the Horton house was haunted. Now, back in 1944, they didn't have the nice morgues and the medical facilities that they do like they do today. The medical technology was just not there. When the doctor rolled, took Maggie Horton's skull and turned it over, it was completely smashed in two. She didn't die from dehydration and exhaustion. She was beaten to death. There were several cracked ribs. And, if, and also, I did research on this. It takes a long time for bone to, um, you know, start the breaking down process. You know, people find bones of animals. Some people even find bones of people. And so this is what happened to Jeremy Stone. They had this paranormal activity on this property. They had no idea what to do. They were scared to death. But... And now they're finding that Maggie Horton was buried right under their noses. Right. So, and, of course, they, uh, the reporters showed up and nobody knew how they even got notified. I'm sorry. You're going to have to say that again. You were breaking up on me. The reporters that showed up, nobody knew how they got notified. You know, it's a small town, and, and I don't know. My speculation is that maybe a secretary had called the newspapers. I really don't know, but I will tell you this. Jennifer and Robert said that they were on their backs about everything and were taking pictures. Now, when the pictures were developed... There were only two reporters that came out with cameras. What they had back then was called a veto camera. That is the most popular camera back then. Very, very good camera. And one of the reporters was taking pictures. But when he went back and he went inside of his lab 
And he started putting the films in the developing solution. He had no idea that he was going to capture orbs. He had no idea that he had captured Maggie Horton's silhouette standing beside the children. Right. And I have that in the book. Right, I remember that. Because of the process of the old photos back then, it was more likely, yes, there was a lot of hokery, but it was a lot better uh, as far as uh, paranormal evidence because today there there are apps on your cell phones now that you can really fake it. So you really, they really were on the cutting edge where uh, photos were concerned. That's right, because the authenticity was, you know, you're so right. They didn't have that technology to alter a photo. But not only did Mr. Green capture this, the other um, newspaper reporter captured it as well. And they started to compare what they saw. And they knew that they had the story of the century. But what it did to this family, the lack of sleep, People coming, knocking on their door at all hours of the night. Is your house haunted? They, I mean, the Stone family were celebrities from then on. Yeah. Uh, DeMurray, R.L. DeMurray, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right. He raises a good question. You know, back then they would call something like that a double exposure. That'd be their way of explaining it away. That's right. Um, I guess there was double exposing, double exposure back then, but not as prevalent as there is today. One time I took a picture on top of a picture, and, and I didn't realize that I did it, and I had two pictures on the same film. So, you know, like, like I totally agree with you. With the technology today, you can do so much to make something look like it is when it really isn't. But back then, 1944, World War II time, with the veto camera, more of your pictures had more authenticity to it. I'm hearing a dog bark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 go on past that. <laughs> um. Anyway, getting back now, I, I I apparently I missed that part because I was seeing where they were talking about taking uh, uh taking Jeremy to jail and didn't understand he had found that body. So the the um the headstone had been lost, yes. removed. The headstone was still there. They, the headstone was still there. Yes, they were able to take the headstone and put the pieces together. And what it had was Margaret Horton. It had her birth and her death date on there. They were able to piece that together. Now, how the stone got there, from what I understand, was... James Horton, he had a lot of money, but he did not want to do anything for his wife. So he did not, when he buried her on the property, there were some church family members who 
put the stone there, but he didn't. Now, you have to understand that days later, after Maggie Horton was murdered, Mr. Horton took off and left everything behind. Well, I, I read that he took one of the cows with him. He did take a cow with him, yes. And yes. I saw that one of them was left behind, and that's what John Smith discovered before the glass... No, no. That, yeah, that before the glass shattered his neck, yeah. That's right, that's right, a horrible smell. One of the things, too, is that when the paranormal investigator came to the home, he went inside of that barn, and he smelled the same odor, and I have that written in the book. Now, Did James, something... I'm sorry. When James left, he left his son with some neighbors and pretty much just left his son and went on. That's right. Yeah. He, that's right. He took off. That would be hard on that kid growing up, you know, knowing that his father, well, I'm not going to say he didn't want him, but he didn't want to deal with him. That is correct. And you know, a lot of, uh, back then, and it still happens to this day, when you have a farm and you have to keep that farm, you have to keep that farm up. The last thing you want to do as a single parent, of course, is to have to tend to a baby. There was no way that he could feed that child. So he knew that he had to do something with that baby. And so what he did was that he took it to some of the church members. They took in that child, and they raised that child. Now, the child grew up. James Horton took off. Okay. Uh, okay. We're coming to y'all live from WCJV Digital Broadcasting out of Youngstown, New York. Uh, we're going to have to take another little break. We'll be right back momentarily. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Um, this has been just a real exciting and interesting interview. Karen, you are a very, very awesome person. And uh, 
I know we're 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 kind of you know we're wrapped up in the book here, but I I wanted you to be able to tell everybody a little bit of what you've overcome in order to even produce this novel. Okay, you're gonna have to say that again. You're breaking up on me. I'm so sorry. Okay, I wanted you to let everybody know kind of what you had to go through and overcome to be able to do this novel. Absolutely. Well, I was adopted at birth, and I was born with an ear disfigurement. And when I was in the second, the first grade, my parents started to notice, my teachers started to notice that I was not learning the way that I need to learn. A first grader should be able to get through simple words, cat, hat, bat, dad, mom. I could not even spell them. Um, I talked backwards. I wrote backwards. Um, I could not even complete a sentence. My cognitive skills were not there. I failed the first grade miserably. They pushed me through and I went to the second grade. I failed miserably. Now, a second grader should be able to get through a Dick and Jane book. Dick finds the ball. Jane sees the ball. Jane sees a cat. I could not even read it. I could not even get through it. The third grade failed it miserably. I could not even write my own name. And I went to my mother and I said, Mommy, how do I write name? And she said, Honey, K-A-R-E-N. Oh, K-R-A-E-N. And so I couldn't even get that right. They had me tested. My parents were wonderful. They worked with vocational rehabilitation. So they had worked with people who were handicapped. And they were able to take me to the right testing centers. They had me tested. They said that I had dyslexia. I had a reading disability. And I had a learning disability. I could not even do math. I could not even read a book. I was placed in the Barrett Reading Center. Now, this is a very special reading center. It was at Barrett Elementary School in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I remember my teacher. She got down on her knees. Her name was Julie Jones. And she said, Karen, I am going to teach you how to read. I could not even go to a regular classroom. I was placed in special education all of my scholastic years. I just was not smart enough. I could not handle the work. I started reading probably complete sentences when I was around 12 to 13 years old, maybe a little later than that. Um, so after I had a horrible time, not only in middle school, but also in high school, because I was placed in special education, my cognitive skills were very slow, and I have the scores to prove it. And when I write my own book, which I've already started, called Karen's Story, I have no problem copying and putting my test scores in the book. After graduating high school, and you have to understand, I had dyslexia. Not only did I have dyslexia, but I also had a reading disability. Not only did I have a reading disability, but I had a learning disability. And if you look at the brain of a normal child versus the brain of a person who has a learning disability, you will see that some of the um, 
um, you know, that something's not connecting there. And that's the way that it was explained to me. I was had to go to the hospital all through my life and have these electrodes put to my head. It's called an EEG, not an EKG, but an EEG. And I remember telling my mom, why do doctors have to look at how I think? That's private. They don't need to know how I think. But what they were looking at was my brain waves because my learning disability, my dyslexia, and my reading disability. So I had to go through that. Now, after graduation from high school, the bullying was terrible, absolutely terrible. And in another radio show, I you know, spoke about that. And I think that I quieted the entire chat room because some people were actually crying. And the bullying that I had to go through, you know, kids were mean. But I wanted to really make something of myself, having to be in special education all of my life, having to have books read to me, not being able to write well, not being able to speak well, not being able to succeed like I wanted to succeed. All I wanted to do was be normal. Can I please just be normal? So I wanted to go to college, and my dad said, Karen, You've had so many failures and so many mountains that you've had to climb and so many valleys that you have had to go through. I just don't think that your college material. I, I, I don't want to see you fail again. I love you, but I just don't think that you're going to be able to do it. And I said, Daddy, I want to go to college. I want to make something of myself. My dad said, okay, let me see what I can do. One day he came home with a brochure. In fact, people that are listening and even listening in the archives, you can look up my university. It's called University of the Ozarks, and they have what is called a Jones Learning Center. It is the best learning center in the United States. They geared their program toward kids who have learning disabilities, dyslexia, dysgraphia. Um, they also help people who um, have other various forms of learning disability. And that is the only way that I was going to be able to go to college. The only way that I was ever going to make anything of myself was to go through the Jones Learning Center, and I was accepted, and I started college. I could not believe it. They took me... They scored me. They tested me and my scores. Karen is right here. Now, what we're going to do is that we're going to put her on a probationary term to see if she can do the work. And I was able to do the work. And how they did it was that they read my books to me. They took dictation for me. Um when I would go into a classroom, I could take my tape recorder and I could tape my lessons and listen to my lessons. And I was able to graduate, not with honors, of course, but I was able to graduate college with a double major in psychology and sociology with a minor in religion. I wanted to make something of myself. And if anybody has walked in my shoes, and there's a lot of people who have contacted me since I wrote Shoe Marks that have contacted me and said, I absolutely cannot believe that you did this. And it's not that I'm bragging. I want you to understand. But I refused to lay down. I refused to lay down. One time when I was writing shoe marks, I threw up my hands, Roger and Hank, and I said, I can't do this. 
I can't do it. But I kept plugging along, and I kept plugging along and kept doing it. Now, one of the things that, you know, people say, oh, you've overcome your learning disability. You've overcome dyslexia. No, you never overcome it. I have to deal with it every single day. Dyslexia for me is my eyes avert to the right instead of to the left. So if I'm reading a number 79, I'm going to say 97, and I do it all the time. If I'm reading something, my eyes will avert to the right of the letters instead of starting to the left where they should be, and I do that all the time. Now, one of the things is that when I wrote shoe marks, I did write shoe marks on the computer. And I'll tell you what, when I got finished with it, it was a mess. But thank God for spell check and thank God for great editors that knew that I had a learning disability, dysgraphia, excuse me, dyslexia and a reading disability. So they knew what to look for as far as that it's structure. Luckily, it wasn't that bad, but to me, it was a mess. But anyway, I got what was called the Dragon. The Dragon is a voice-to-speech narration device. You can find it at Walmart or, or any retail place, but it's called the Dragon. And it was the best birthday gift that I've ever given to myself because I can speak my novels. I have a novel... I have another novel that's out now called Secrets in the Shallows. And when I wrote my parts on that novel, now this novel is co-authored with the famous Kimberly Burlett. She's also, she is also the editor on the book. The segments that I wrote, I wrote with the dragon. And I'm also writing my fourth and my fifth novels that I've started now. All of those will be spoken instead of written on the computer. It is wonderful having dyslexia and then having the dragon to help you. That is what I went through. And I'll tell you what, I can spend two hours, two hours of telling people, you know, for a long time, I was embarrassed about who I was. I was embarrassed to let anybody know that I had a learning disability. I did not want anybody to know that I was in special ed, especially through middle and high school. I didn't want anybody to know, and I hid it very, very well. I even hid it from my friends. I hid it from my boyfriends. I did not want anyone to know because of the embarrassment. But now, as an adult, I'm able to help people. And people have come to me, and they said, you know, I have a child who has a learning disability, or I have a child that has dyslexia. They want to do something. What do I tell them? I know that they can't do it. And I say, Mama, you need to step back, and you need to let your child try. I've had people that have contacted me that have invited me to their universities to speak, and I speak on a regular basis. A lot of times I go to high schools and I, you know, talk to the kids about what it's like growing up with a learning disability, what it's like growing up with dyslexia, and then becoming an award-winning author, which Schumarks is an award-winning author, is an award-winning novel in literary category. You also so, have another novel that's up for an award, too, do you not? 
Yes, it is. Secrets of the Shallows is up for an award in literary fiction. Um, I don't know how it's going to do. What happens, let me explain the process, is that um, in this particular award, what happens is that your book on how many entries there are, I don't know how many entries um there are this time, but I do know that Shoe Marks was up against some really, really big names out there. And so what happens is that the book is given to a panel of readers. Some are editors, some are magazine editors, some are just avid readers, some are teachers, some are English teachers. So professionals read the book and then they read the next one and the next one and then by secret ballot they vote and shoe marks won over all of them in literary category and I was absolutely amazed I will never forget I was standing in Kroger grocery store and I was by the meat department and I got this text from a friend of mine that said you won and I thought hoo-hoo what did I win a million dollars and she said, no, silly, you won. And I started screaming in that grocery store. I absolutely could not believe it. All the hard work. Uh, and also, when I found out that shoe marks had won, the people that came to my mind, first off, was my father. The second people that came to my mind, in my mind's eye, was my teachers, Miss Jones, Miss Hofer, Miss McCormick, Mr. McCain, because if it wasn't for them and it wasn't that they um, put their time in my life to help me, I would not be writing novels today. Well, I just want to say that I think you are a very amazing and talented person. And, you know, even with all the problems that you have, you did an outstanding job. That book is terrific, I ain't, and I couldn't put it down. Well, oh, not yeah. literally that I was holding it, but, I mean, when I, when I pulled it up on the screen, it's like I couldn't stop reading it. You know, I was just, like, going on and on and on and on, and I'm like, what's, what's going to happen? What's she going to do next, you know? And, <laughs> you know, are they going to leave? Are they going to stay? What's going to happen, you know? And one of the things in the book that really had me going, because when you're a paranormal investigator, you know, that's one of the things that you find in locations is like cold spots and stuff. And oh, yes. in this okay. particular part where it was talking about it was so cold that there was actually ice forming on the windows. Now, that was some, you know, really intense energy. That is correct. It would get so cold in that house that... Jennifer could see her mother's breath. Jennifer could see her own breath. It was that cold in the house. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said they were literally shaking from the cold. That's how cold it was. Yes, absolutely. It was strange. Even when I went inside of the Horton home, I would walk through a very warm spot and feel very comfortable. And then I would go through a cold spot. And if... If you have not experienced this kind of cold, it is an instant cold. It's not a gradual cold, but it's an instant cold. It's like going from a freezer into an 80-degree room. It's like that, and it's a chilling stone cold, and then you just walk right out of it. Sometimes I could go into a room. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. but. um, you know, you figure something like that could happen, you know. 
I'm used to walking into a cold spot where the temperature may be, you know, 15, 20 degrees colder, but not where it goes from like 70 degrees to freezing like that, you know. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, it, uh, I mean, that house definitely has activity in it. And the cold spots would get so cold to where you could see your breath. Maggie Horton was very, very angry. She was very angry. Yeah, I gathered that. She's, uh, now I, I gotta ask this question that's bugging me. I'm gonna back way up to where I asked about John Smith. Okay. Now, him and her were ex-lovers, right? Yes, they were. Why did she kill him? I want to think that she did. I don't have any, I mean, I want to think that she did. That's what I'm saying. Why would she have wanted to kill him? Because her husband beat her. And it, she blamed him or? I would think so. Um, so that's how I wrote it. Um, that's what the townspeople believe. I mean, why would somebody have their throat slit and still be on that property being found right. three days later? I mean, this home is way out in the country. There's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of traffic. So to have that, I would think, I would think that Maggie Horton manifested herself through something to kill John Smith. Now, that makes sense. I mean, when you look at the psychology of what happened to her, her lashing out, realistically in anger because it was him their interaction at the barn that pushed uh that pushed james right over the edge it absolutely did the way that i understand from talking to people at in the small community they remember a lot of the older residents who who were around at that time, I'm sure that some have already gone on, but there were some that remember James and Maggie Horton as children. One of the ones that knew them as children was the store owner. Of course, he's now dead and gone, bless his heart, but he knew of them, and his father knew of them. So... You know, a lot of people back then, because it was such a small community, they knew Jane, um, they knew John Smith, they knew James Horton, and they knew Maggie Horton. And James Horton was very, very mean, from what I understand. Now, that's how they knew that it was Maggie that they were seeing, was because they saw the picture in the store, right? Yes, and I was a yes, and the neat thing that I was able to tell you on break is that I was able to go into that general store and I was able to see that exact same picture that wow. yes, that um that Laura Stone saw. She saw an apparition in her bathroom and I have it written and Jennifer remembers it vividly. She 
she came out screaming, saying that there's a woman in my bathroom. And when they went to the general store, and I have everything in that book written out exactly how I wanted it because I needed to go in the store and I needed to get the furniture right, the cash register right. I needed to make sure that everything was up to snuff when I wrote it because I didn't want to leave anything out. One of the first things that I said is that I would like to see the picture of the people who helped spearhead this general store. And I was able to see a picture of Maggie Horton and that photograph is still there today on the wall. Karen, I got an interesting question for you. With all of your uh, writings that you're doing, what kind of paranormal experiences have you had on your own when you're not when you're not writing your books? Well, um, my husband and I, now our home today that we have down here in Houston does not have paranormal activity. But when I was writing shoe marks, I did have paranormal activity in my house. One of the things was when I was writing shoe marks, and I know that you asked if I had paranormal activity aside from the writing. Yes, I did in the home that was close to Dallas. I definitely had paranormal activity in that house, but also when I was writing shoe marks, I felt a hand on top of my head, and it went down, and it patted my shoulders, and it felt very feminine. There was another time that I was writing shoe marks, and I was reading it to my friend Zarita, who also happens to be a wonderful children's author, and I was reading it to her, and both of our computers crashed at the same time. Another time that I was writing shoe marks, the whole left side of my body was very, very warm. It was like I was standing close to a hot stove. It felt feminine. Now... Some of the paranormal activity that I've experienced was the first time is when I lived in Maine. Um, a lot of people know this because I do share it. When I lived in the state of Maine, which is where Secrets in the Shallows, my second novel is depicted, um, I was house-sitting for a woman named Dolly, and she was... A an old woman, she danced before the Rockettes, and they lived in a home that was dated back in the early 1800s, and a, a lot of your homes up there are, because it was part of the 13 colonies, which was Massachusetts at that time. It was not Maine, so there's another history lesson for you. But the daughters told me, if you see anything, if you hear anything, don't get scared, just ignore it. And I said, what in the world are you talking about? And they said, well, there was a teenage boy that had committed suicide in his room. He hung himself with his own belt. And I laughed in their faces, Roger and Hank. I laughed in their faces. And I said, uh-uh, no way. No, uh-uh, no. I come from a Christian family. We don't talk about this stuff. This stuff is taboo. This stuff is not real. And when they left... Dolly and I sat down. We started um, watching a Fred Astaire movie because she loved Fred Astaire movies. And so there was a Coca-Cola bottle, one of the old Coca-Cola bottles, not as like the tall ones today, but the short one. It fell off of the bookcase and it started spinning around. I heard 
um, voices. I heard footsteps coming from upstairs, and I asked her what in the world is going on, and she said, honey, he's here, he's here. And I said, who's here? I, I tell you what, when those daughters came back, I was whiter than I am now. I was scared to death, and that was the very first paranormal experience that I experienced. Now, when we lived in our house at a Wowlette, um, one of the very first experiences that I had, and I'm not going to tell you exactly where, but it is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I had put my daughter's high chair table. Every night I would wipe it off and and I would wash it off. And I put it in the middle of the kitchen table. Well, my daughter had a cold. She couldn't even walk yet. She was just a baby. And I put that high chair table on the kitchen table to dry. I heard a crash, and it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I went into the kitchen, and guess where that high chair table was? It was in the middle of the floor scared me to death. Another time in this home, my daughter, she was, oh God, we'd stayed in that house probably about four years, but she was in her crib and she should have been taking a nap because as a mother, I'm tired too. And so I needed my nap. She needed her nap. But I hear, <laughs> and I go into her room. She doesn't know that I'm watching her. But I go into her room, and I peek around the corner, and I see her thumbs in her ears, and she's wiggling the end of her fingers, and she has her tongue out. And she's moving her head going, <laughs> and then she starts playing, peek a I see you. And she's staring at the corner of the room, and there is nothing there. She finally spotted me, and she said, Mommy, Mommy, funny man, don't you see funny man? Peek-a-boo, I see you. And I was frightened. I was scared. And, I, of course, I knew to play along with it, to not tell her, Honey, you're seeing stuff. I went with it, and I said, what does funny man look like? She said, all black. Now, she knew her colors then, black, red, yellow, and green. All black, black, tall hat, black, tall hat on top head. And so I said, okay. And she started playing peekaboo again, put her thumbs in her ears, started wiggling her fingers. And I learned that children have, they're so innocent but she was playing along. She saw Funny Man. I did not see Funny Man, but she did. And she was reacting to what he was doing. Now, as soon as she spotted me, she said, Mommy, you made Funny Man go away. The next year, it snowed in the Dallas area. And it snows pretty much, you know, just about every winter there will be some kind of winter precipitation, but it did snow that year. And my husband and I were in the kitchen, and we heard a crash. The television was on top of my daughter. How in the world did that happen? That television was heavy. There's no way, no way that she could have climbed up there and pulled it off. 
when I went outside and I went back inside, we had gotten her calmed down, but I went outside to take a breather because I was so frightened. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a man dressed in black with a top hat standing in the snow. Another time I was in in the bathroom, I was taking a shower, and I, there were hairspray cans that were falling over. There was makeup bottles that were on the floor, and I went to my husband, and I said, what in the world are you looking for? And he said, nothing. I wasn't even in there. And, of course, you know, the baby was in the the crib. There's no way that she could have gotten out. So, yes, aside from writing, aside from writing shoe marks, aside from writing secrets in the shallows, did I have paranormal activity? Yes, I did. Karen, are you not hearing the echo? Yes, I am. Yeah, it's it's there. It's prominent. <laughs> That's all right. <clears throat> okay, folks, uh, we're live on WCJV Digital Broadcasting out of Youngstown, New York. we got to take another little break, but we'll be right back. Never fear. That happened.
Okay, everybody, we're back. Uh, Miss Karen, uh, I don't know where you were at there when when I had to call the break, but uh, you can continue if you if you want where you was at and. Well, that's the experience that I had, you know, living in the house close to Dallas. Now, one of the things that uh, I do ask, you know, on occasion, I will ask my daughter, I'll say, do you remember Funny Man? And, of course, thank God she doesn't because she was so young then. And I'm just thankful that it didn't have a lasting effect on her. Now, one of the things that I did do was I did contact my realtor. Her, her name was Brenda, and I, and I did contact her, and I said, something is going on in my home. I said, I don't know what. But I said, I want you to look at the disclosure. I said, we need to contact. Um, we definitely need to go down to the courthouse. We need to see who owned this home. I said, I'm having paranormal activity. And thank goodness she did not laugh at me because she had, <laughs> it's kind of ironic, but she, she too had paranormal activity in her home as well. And she lived on the other side of town. So we moved before it got that far, but I will tell you this. I have looked on realtor.com, and my little house that I painted and I loved that had paranormal activity in it, that house has sold repeatedly. It's always up for sale. <laughs> so I don't know if there's still activity in it. We called the ghost Chester. You know, I just kind of, you know, came up with the name. I said, oh, well, Chester's here. Another thing that happened, and my daughter does remember this. She was around four. We were making cookies. And both of us at the same time heard the back door open and slam shut. And we were like, Daddy's home. And I'm like, what in the world is Daddy home at 1 o'clock in the afternoon? And so we both ran to the back door, and that door was bolted and locked. But we both uh -huh. heard the door open and slam shut. And I looked at my daughter, and I said, well, it must be Chester. And so, you know, we went back. You know, we started doing our cookies again. But one of the things is that in the neighborhood that we lived in, I did do some investigation not in an extensive one, but I did do some, and I started talking to neighbors. And there was one neighbor that did live down the street from me, and she said that my home has activity in it, too. She said, the ghost is very interested in my dryer and will open up the door and slam it shut and open up the door. Like maybe the ghost was back in the 1800s and had never seen an electric dryer before. But... From what I understand, that land at one time was a cotton field. Another time, it was a pig farm. So I don't know if the paranormal activity was tied to the land or if it was tied to the house. The right. house is in that area. Now, oh, yeah. you asked... Uh I'm sorry, go ahead. 
is on, in the chat room here was wanting to know if uh, you experienced hot spots. Did I experience hot spots? Cold and hot spots? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I could go into my guest bedroom and it would be cold and I could walk out and it would be warm. Then I could walk down the hallway and it was like I was coming through the refrigerator and walking right back out. So, yes, the house in the Dallas area did have cold and hot spots. Hey, Karen, are you on, mm-hmm. are you on, are you online in the chat room right now? No, I'm not. Do I need to? Um, well, people are asking questions in the chat room. Okay. Let me go ahead and look at the chat room real quick. And let me get back there to my office. Normally, I walk around when I talk. It's hard for me to sit still in one place. So let me get back in my office, and I will definitely look at the chat room um, and see. Okay. I just gently rock back and forth. (laughs) Okay. Um, I just Okay, you... Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, CJ says, I'd love to talk to Karen from Australia, but it costs too much. CJ, you are so cool. <laughs> okay. What are some of the other questions that I need to see in a chat room? Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. CJ says you can ask questions in the chat. I'm not really seeing a question. Maybe I need to scroll up. Uh, it was well. What we did was we had asked you uh, for Sonia. Uh, yeah, because she is, she's in Australia. Okay. And she's listening to us. Hi. Hello, Sonia. How are you doing? All the way from Australia. Bless your heart. Thank you for listening in. Okay. Some other questions. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I normally walk around when I talk about Schumart or any other interview that I'm on. It just makes me more comfortable than just sitting still. So um, I guess that goes along with having. Um, thank you, Sonia. You are so sweet. Sonia says, I'm loving your show and thank you so much sweetheart i appreciate that and thank you for the support that you've shown me you are so sweet um let's see other comments here um i'm scrolling up uh let's see here but one of the other things that you asked me about um um roger was the other book that I'm writing about right now, I'm writing two more. They are both paranormal. One is called The Crossroads, and it is paranormal in nature. I'm halfway through that one. I'm writing that one on my dragon. But another now, one that, that... Is that one uh, based on any fact, or is it a book? Actually... Uh, the other one that I talked to you about is based on fact. When I wanted to show you, I have been contacted by a family who lives in northeast Texas up by Shreveport, Louisiana. They have had horrible paranormal experiences in their home and outside their home on their land. Now, they contacted me. And they sent me about a hundred pages. Fifty of those pages are handwritten. 
The others are of photographs and things that they have found online um, about um, about the land. Now, what they believe, and I'm not going to get too much into the story because a lot of it is already written, but the family finds these hills, and the father doesn't like these hills. He wants them bulldozed down to the ground. They're ugly. But they were by a natural stream. And I think that you know where I'm going with this. Right. When he bulldozed down these hills, what he did not know was that he had unearthed an Indian burial ground. Oh, and he Lord. found... Yes, and he found stones, he found medicine stones, he found prayer stones, he found, um, he found rocks, he found arrowheads, um, and he said, kids, 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 come here and look at this, this is so cool. And he took one of the prayer stones, one of the grinding stones, and I have a picture of it, and, and Hank and Roger, I will show you this picture if, we're on Skype again. I will be happy to. I've been up at, I have been up at the house three times already on location. As soon as they bring the stone into the home, that is when the paranormal activity starts. I have already started this novel. It is based on true fact, paranormal activity, and I have entitled the book called The Stone. Hello, everyone. This is R.L. Demery. More from author Karen Vance Hammond right after this with, I would say, a, a first people uh, medicine man to make sure yes. that they've got it done right. And that should, that should help that, uh, that situation. That is correct. That is something that they do need to do. Unfortunately, they haven't done that yet. Um, but I was able to see the stone. I was able to pick it up. I was able to hold it. I was able to take pictures of it, able to talk to the family, get their paranormal experiences down on paper, because I want everything in chronological order when I finish this novel. I want it to be the best, the best that it can be. Now, when you, you handled that stone, did you get, like, any weird vibes or feelings off of it, or? I got lightheaded. I got lightheaded. Okay. You could tell there was energy coming from it, is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I believe there was, yes. I definitely believe there was. Um, R.K. Weigel uh, is talking about the Dragon software. Um, Sonia wanted to know about the Dragon. Sonia, you can find it on Amazon. All you have to do is type in the Dragon text. 
speech narration and and it should show up there. Now, getting back into the, uh, when you were, uh, you stayed three days in the, in the Horton house and, and you're telling, you're saying that, you know, you experienced a lot of activity. Did you see the blood boiling in the, in the shoe marks? I did not see it, but boy, I wanted to. I was able to put my fingers inside of the shoe marks. The wood was moist. Um, so you could tell that there had been some activity there. But boy, I wanted to. But one of the people that did catch it was one of the reporters. And that's one of the pictures that made him famous. Right. Stand by. Stand, stand by. We've got uh, seven minutes before we close everything out. Uh, Karen, uh, if you could give out your links and, you know, for your books and, and your links, what that you would normally do. Yeah, uh, I'll do that right now. During this time would be great. Okay. I'm pasting it in the chat room, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. That way there, everybody can get it. Okay. But I'll also talk about that, too, in case some people are not near um, their... Um, okay. CJ is locked on me for some reason. Uh, I read that already. I, I read that already. That's what it was, uh, telling us to, to wrap it up. It's uh, probably now five minutes left. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I misread that. Seven minutes before the hour. So, yeah, it's still good to get it out there. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, if you put your your links up and and everybody can, uh, yeah, it could feel great. Okay. Well, this is. And I encourage everybody if you haven't read this book, please do. You won't regret it. There's a lot of things that I found in there, uh, with, from from my reading it, uh, just. Oh yeah, I mean this is almost this is almost like being on an actual investigation. Right. The thing is, the thing is it's set in another time, but still still the accuracy of what's going on. Uh, that, right. Oh, yeah, that's kicking. <laughs> yeah, um you know, I I really had to do a lot of research on how they investigated back then. They did have reel-to-reel tape recorders. Um, they were the old-fashioned kind. Um, so uh, they did have dowsing rods. Of course, dowsing rods are still used today. They did have the Ouija board back then. You know, it's not like it is today where you have a ghost box, you have an MF reader. You know, you have all these wonderful technologies that are at your fingertips. I mean, Back then, in 1944, even before then, you had to really work hard to communicate. And so um, one of the things that was interesting to me is the movie The Conjuring. I saw that movie. and oh, there yeah. were some. There was, Yeah, I love that movie. I love Andrea Parrish. She's a very dear friend of mine. We've spoken on the phone before. Um, but one of the similarities was the clocks. And I was so happy to see that. 
you know. Um, so, you know, I was happy to see, oh, thank goodness, because this kind of gives Schumark's validation, you know, that, hey, they're having a clock issue. Um, the Stone people had a clock issue, you know, being in the Horton home in Schumark's. Um, but another thing, too, that was a similarity was the gunshot. And, you know, the gun went off in the conjuring. And, of course, in two marks, there's a gun that fires. So that validated a lot of things for me. And um, Andrea and I were, you know, we were kind of talking about that, you know, some similarities that happened with paranormal activity. See, we didn't bring up anything about the, the lawyer and the, the uh, judge and that's, all that. And the good doctor. That's really... Yeah, that's really toward the end of the book. Um, so I'm kind of going to leave that one alone. <laughs> okay. You know? Yeah, we discussed uh, that during the break. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, um, but yeah, you know, so many things were validated, and, and I was happy to see some similarities. Um, but one day I would love to to, you know, go up to Rhode Island and, you know, visit that area. So, but, you know, down here in Texas, there's so much paranormal activity down here, being close to Louisiana, being close to New Orleans, and, of course, Houston, the Galveston area is loaded with activity. A lot of it has to do with the storm of 1900. So, um, but, yeah, there's a lot of activity. There's also a lot of paranormal investigators down here um, as opposed to other states. So I guess I hope and pray that I fit right in. So Well you got my vote. You're doing you're doing your job. Yeah, well, you got my vote. Well thank you very much. It's um you know it's it's been a lot of fun writing Schumarks. I wanted to get it right. I wanted to get the story right. And one thing about Schumarks that has elated me is that I was contacted by three, um, three movie people. I was contacted by a movie producer. I was also contacted by a screenwriter. And I was contacted by another screenwriter who had read Schumarks that say this would make the most awesome movie on the silver screen. So right now, Shoe Marks is being written as a screenplay. I do not know what it's going to happen. It's a lot of work to get a book made into a, a movie, even if it happens. If it happens. The word is if. I'm hoping that it will. A lot of people say that Shoe Marks would make a great movie. It is being written as a screenplay, so we will see what happens. I was going to ask you that. Had anybody approached you about doing a movie on that? Because I think it would make a great movie. Well, thank you. A lot of people have said that, Roger. And um, even high school kids that have read shoe marks. And even, um, even, uh, um, even adults have said this would make a fantastic film. But, you know, right now, like I said, it is in the early works. It is being written by a professional screenwriter who went to Sale University. Uh, Sale University puts out a lot of screenwriters. Some of those screenwriters are the Blair Witch Project, P. 
paranormal activity. Those people also went to Sale University. So I'm trusting that I have the cream of the cream writing shoe marks into a... Well, now, I'm going to have to tell you that uh, if they do a movie and they stick to the book pretty close, it's going to blow paranormal activity and uh, the other one out of the water. So I've heard that. So, you know, uh, one thing about the screenwriter that is doing the book is that I told him, and we do have a professional contract together that was written up by an attorney, that I have to approve it. I will oh, not sign oh. off on anything unless if I give it my thumbs up. If there's anything awesome. in that screenplay that is out of character, anything in that screenplay that is out of character with Maggie, I will not sign off on it. It has uh, to be rewritten. Oh. You yeah, know we got that, that seven-minute mark. They like to do that where they like to, uh, you know, change up stuff and add in a bunch of stuff that don't belong and to spice up the movie, you know. I don't see a problem with some of a little bit of spicing up as long as you don't, you know, shoot way off the mark with it. Well, that's one thing. If it is written, I mean, it is being written into a screenplay. If Hollywood gets a hold of it, if there is a producer out there that is interested, um, you know, I'm going to say, hey, if you're going to make the movie, I'm going to be on the set. And a lot of people who write novels who do have, who do have a, um, their novels made into a movie, they are on the set to make sure that nothing, nothing is done wrong. And I will say this, and I'm, 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 saying this to prove a point here, Stephen King, I used to drive by his home every single day when I lived in the state of Maine. He is on the set. He is in his movies as a small character. And the reason why he's in his movies as a small character is that he wants to make sure that everything is on the up and up. And that's one thing that I want to do. And I know Come on, I know that I'm putting the cart before the horse here, but I am, I'm just thrilled, I'm honored that somebody came to me and said, I want to write this as a movie screenplay. That blows my mind. I mean, this is my first novel. That absolutely blows me out of the water. And I wish that my mom and dad could see this. God bless their heart. You know, they've already graduated into heaven. But I just wish that my parents could see this. But, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, I don't want to put the cart before the horse. I don't want to say, yes, it's going to be made into a movie. The screenplay's not even finished yet. So we'll just have to see what happens. Did I lose contact? No, oh, we're fine. still... We're waiting for you to take a breath. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're on a roll. I'm sorry. Sometimes I just talk too much. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Don't, that's fine. Don't, don't apologize. Do not you know, apologize. Oh, you're doing one a great of, job. One of the things, Hank, that you wanted me to do, uh, and Roger, was to go ahead and put up the link to shoe marks up on the chat room. But if if you're not looking at the chat room and if you're not uh, near a computer to where you can see it, if you want to see what shoe marks looks like, 
You can go to Amazon. All you have to do is type in shoe marks. It's the very first one that comes up. Um, if you want to see what Secrets in the Shallows looks like, all you have to do is go to Amazon and type in Secrets in the Shallows. Not shadows, but shallows. Because shallow means shallow water. And that right. is where one of the victims dies, is in shallow water. So the novel is, is called Secrets in the Shallows, and that one is also up for, for an award as well. Go to them, see w what the book looks like. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook under Karen Vance Hammond. That's K-A-R-E-N, V as in Victor, V-A-N-C-E-H-A-M-M-O-N-D. Right now, my website's down for maintenance. Um, hopefully, it'll be back up and running here pretty soon, but it is down for maintenance. So, But you can also find Shoe Marks and Secrets in the Shallows on barnesandnoble.com as well. Now, if you don't have a computer, most people do nowadays, but some people don't, um, there was one um, of my readers that did not have access to a computer. So what she did was that she went to Barnes & Noble, and, of course, they ordered the book for her. Well, I tell you what, this has been one exciting deal from start to finish. You did a tremendous job, and the book is excellent. I can't wait to read the next one. And, uh, well, thank you so much. All you people out there, if you haven't read Shoe Marks, you won't be disappointed. Trust me, you need to run out and get it. Uh, it's one of those ones that will keep you on the edge of your seat. So once you start it, you ain't going to be able to stop. Well, I tell you what, Roger and Hank, thank you so much for having me on. It's really been an honor that it's been an honor that you even wanted me on and I thank you so much for that. It's really been a lot of fun. We hey, thank you for all that you've done. That's that's some yeah. great that, that's a great story. It really is. I'm looking forward to the other stories. Well I tell you what, I'm writing as fast as I can. Um in fact I've already started reading um um the crossroads to a very dear friend of mine who also happens to be an author as well. Um, so his name is R.K. Weigel, um, and I started reading that to him, and it's, it's always best if I go ahead and, and if I read segments of the book, because that helps me. That helps me to find mistakes. That helps me to make sure that, that my sentence structure is right. And so to have a... I'm sorry? Uh, Sonia McEvoy would like you to send her a friend request on Facebook there, if you don't mind. That sounds wonderful. Why don't you go ahead, Sonia, just look up Karen Vance Hammond and, and send me that request, because I don't see a last name on the chat room. I just see Sonia. Okay, folks, uh, we're fixing to wind this down. We're still live on WCJP Digital Broadcasting out of Youngstown, New York. It's been a wonderful show, Karen. You've been great. All you guys out there listening, run out and grab that book. You won't regret it. 
Uh, until next Monday night, everybody have a great night. And remember, ghosts are people too. That's right. been building in your mind, but you'll find a way to live these dreams you hold inside. You can't just live within your grasp, cause what's out of reach are all the things that you were meant to be.